0: It's a good thing. I know I'm happy about that. I was at the Travelers yesterday and saw the Lacy's and some of the folks, and it's just nice to be in the good weather and warmth. It's a beautiful thing. It really is. And, uh, but let's go ahead and get into the Word this morning. I want to start off by talking about a phrase, a phrase that you all know. It's something you say probably pretty regularly, one more time, one more time. Say it with me, one more time. Now, that's a phrase that depending on how you say it, it can mean different things, right? Like, I'm a golfer, okay? So if I'm having, I just have my best nine holes ever, and when I'm done with those, I'm going to say, one more time, let's play another nine. I'm hot, I want to keep playing, right? Or a kid, you know, I want to go on the roller coaster. One more time, right? Those are all good one more times. But then there's the... Do I have to tell you that one more time? The same phrase, it means completely different things, right? Or you want to go on the roller coaster one more time, right? Even the same subject, it can be totally different depending on how you say the phrase. Well, in our pastor this morning, I think Jesus has a little bit of this going on. We're going to see a miracle that we've already seen. He's going to do this really great miracle one more time, which is wonderful. But having to explain the significance of the miracle to his disciples again one more time, that's not so wonderful. And I wonder with some of us this morning, where we are in our walk with God, is he having to re-explain the same lessons he's already taught us over and over And over one more time, where are we? We're in a sermon series on the gospel of Mark, and we've called it Jesus More Than Enough. Today, we're entering into Mark 8. We're almost halfway through the book now. So if you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to open to Mark chapter 8. If you're using the Bible that's underneath the chairs, it's page number 705. 705, if you're using the Bible that's underneath the chairs, we invite you to open up the scripture. And um, what we're going to see here is Jesus is going to feed thousands of people. Does that sound familiar? That's a deja vu, right? It's One more time. It's a great miracle. But as I said, once again, kind of like us sometimes, we don't get the message the first time. And he's got to re-explain it. And again, I want us to be thinking about, is he having to re-explain things to me? Or am I getting what he's saying to me? Where are we in our discipleship and our work with Jesus? I've entitled it, The King is Here, because I think that's the essential lesson that Jesus is teaching through these miracles. The King is here. His kingdom is real. It's more real than the nose on your face. Do you believe it? Do your actions and and, and words and decisions reflect the reality of the kingdom in our midst? Or do we need to learn all over again that he really is here with his power and everything? Again, where are we? Let's go ahead into Mark chapter 8. I'm going to read first first 10 verses to start this morning. During those days, another large crowd gathered, and since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him, and he said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they'll collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, But where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he'd taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, The disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. After he'd sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. Father, as we come before you and open up your word before our eyes, Lord, I pray that we would do more than read ink, ink, on paper. I pray you would open the eyes of our hearts. And our souls. And the ears of our hearts. And our souls. To see and hear. The reality of your presence. And how that changes everything. Father would you please. Help us to be awake. To the power and presence of Jesus. In this place. And the reality of your kingdom. that's That's been inaugurated. Help us to enter into all that you have for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Well, we start off here in verse 1 with, During those days, another large crowd gathered. During those days, what is it, what days? The days that we've been reading about since about halfway through verse 7, which is when he went on this long trip through Gentile territory. And then he ends up in a place called the Decapolis. Here's the map again. You see the Sea of Galilee, the white spot right in the middle, and he, oh, where all well those arrows are is where he's been walking. And he's down here in this area called Decapolis. I forgot my pointer. It's okay. I don't need it because uh, someone's going to go run. But don't go get it. <laughs> but right down here in this lower uh, section here, near the Sea of Galilee, that's where he is. Now that area is a mixed area of we knew we know it was Jews and Gentiles were sort of mixed together in that area. And that's where he's been in the end. The last chapter, if you remember, there was a man who was deaf and could hardly speak. We talked about him last week. And Jesus heals him. It was down in that area. So he's still in that area. And it appears that at some point, a large crowd gathered. And from what we read in verse 2, they've been with Jesus for three days. and And they've got nothing to eat. And so Jesus has compassion on them because of that. I don't think that they came without any food. I think they came with food, and now the three days have gone by, and they're out of food, okay? So they, they, they've they been there. I don't think they've been without water and food for three days. The bottom line is they're, they're, he doesn't want to now send them away because they're going to collapse, and, and they've come a long way. and So he's just making the observation. He Notice he doesn't give any orders, go and feed them, anything like that. He's just saying, I have compassion on these people. They've Wow, they've been so spiritually hungry, right? They've stayed here for three days listening to me. I mean, you think I preach a long time. How about three days, okay? So no complaints. No, I'm kidding. Of course, Jesus for three days would be more interesting than me in three seconds, so I understand that too. But anyways, these people are hungry. They, they've been so hungry spiritually for what Jesus is feeding that they've even lost thought about food, They're so caught up in in what Jesus is bringing in the kingdom in this teaching. It's a beautiful picture of spiritual hunger being satisfied by Jesus. But what I want you to notice is this. In the middle of all of this teaching, he notices they're running out of food. In other words, now I'm a type A. Anybody else type A in this room? You know, you're a hard driver. You like to get tasks done, right? I'm like that. And when I'm in the middle of getting my tasks done, Sometimes it's easy to not notice the stuff that's happening right in front of you. Or some of us aren't so socially maybe oriented and we don't even notice that as we're going on and on, there's a need that's developing right in front of us. But Jesus doesn't do that. I love the sensitivity we see right here in these first few verses. He's aware of the need that's right there in front of him. And that's an application right off the bat here. How aware are we of the needs that are surrounding us in the middle of the things that we're living our life and doing our work or doing our our hobbies, our tasks? We go to the post office. Are we aware that maybe we'll have a kingdom opportunity there? If you were here last week, you would have heard Nicole Perot's testimony. Didn't she do a wonderful job, by the way? Powerful. But it was because a guidance counselor was not just focused on getting his job done so he could go home while he's on the job, he was spiritually aware and he saw a young girl that needed some, some special attention, praise God. And then I told you my story of my family. And thank God there was a man at the Department of Motor Vehicles who did more than just punch the clock. He saw my mom was in need crying after flunking her test and went over and that led directly to her finding Christ and me finding Christ. Just regular people living their lives but, but not... With blinders on, aware. Are we aware of the need at work, in our neighborhood, and the the different things we're doing? So right off the bat, Jesus is aware, and he's not just so task-driven. So how do the disciples respond? Verse 4, they answer, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? Okay, hold on a second. Y'all remember what happened back in chapter 6? I preached this, what, a month ago back in chapter 6, Jesus fed a lot of people. Remember how many? 5,000, right? After seeing that, and now just a few, who knows how much longer, but not much longer, Jesus notices, oh, how can we get food for these thousands? What did you expect verse 4 to be? Lord, just do what you did last time. I mean, it were. There were thousands there that time too, and food wasn't a problem. There was no peapod delivering food. You just remember what you did? But there's no mention of that. Instead, what do they say? We can't get enough bread for this. It's like, hello? McFly, right? <laughs> uh, did you learn your lesson or not? My goodness. How could they miss it so bad? Right? Right? how does Jesus respond? He says, how many loaves do you have? I wonder how he said that, though. How many loaves do you have, right? I mean, I just did this, right? Who knows how he said it? We don't know. But anyways, how many loaves do you have? Seven, they replied. So he told the crowd. Now he does the exact same thing we saw him do with the feeding of the 5,000. Essentially the same thing. He tells the crowd to sit down on the ground. When they take in the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them, gave them to the disciples. He distributes to the people. Then he does the same thing with the fish. I don't need to read it. It's the exact same thing we've already gone through. The people eat. They're satisfied. Afterward, they pick up extra leftovers. Thousands are fed, and they go away satisfied physically and spiritually. Deja vu, one more time. It's the, it sounds like the same miracle, doesn't it? And actually, that's been a debate among commentators for centuries. Is this actually the same miracle and somehow it's told twice? That's been a debate. I mean, how many of you ever played the children's game telephone, right? You ever done telephone? All right, most of you have done telephone. What happens in telephone by the end of telling the story? What happens? It's all messed up, right? The details are all wrong. Now, remember, this miracle happens during the lifetime of Jesus. We're talking 30s A.D., the book of Mark is written decades later. That's an awfully... I mean, we get it wrong when we do telephone over three minutes. Now try decades of telling this story. And maybe as it got transmitted, somehow someone said four. Or somehow someone said only seven. And, and all of a sudden, these stories got replicated. Two stories emerged. And by the time they wrote the Gospels, they just shared it as if it was two different things. But it's really one and the same. Do you know why people try to make the argument that it's only one can you guess what's their problem with this text that make them really want to say it's one thing not two no what in the text makes no sense the way the disciples respond right they just saw it guys Get in the skin of this. They just saw 5,000. Probably, that's men. Probably 15,000. I said to you a month ago, it was like the Excel Center. Picture that full of people. And all you got is a little boy's lunch. Every single person got fill, fed and there was leftover. Do you think you'd forget that anytime soon? So this makes no sense. How could they... Answer this way if there really had been another miracle. This has got to be the same miracle. That's the logic. That's the logic unless you look at our lives. Because what happens in our lives? Do we not see God provide one moment? And how long does it take before we respond in the exact same way? way when the next bill comes that i can't pay when the next illness comes and i don't understand what god's doing this isn't very far i think this is pretty true to our experience we have short-term memory don't we and actually and then if we just go by the pure data there is a lot of difference between these two stories i just quickly just kind of did a comparison of my own here First of all, if you go back to chapter 6, that miracle, the 5,000, first of all, different number. Number two, they spend one day with Jesus. Here it says three days. There it was a crowd of Jews. There, this is in the Decapolis, which would clearly be mixed. Everyone agrees with that. There's no question there. That was the northeastern shore of, of Sea of Galilee. This is the southeast, different place. The disciples initiated that one. They came to Jesus and said, we need to feed these people. Here Jesus initiates it. There they organized into groups, if you remember, like military bands. There's no organization talked about here. They sat literally using the word green grass because that would have been something that stood out. There's no mention of that here. There were five loaves, two fish, seven loaves, few fish. And then one really stands out. You wouldn't tell in the English at all. 12 small baskets are left over in the old miracle of the 5,000. Seven large baskets. It's a different word in the Greek. It's the same word in the English, baskets. But the Greek's different. The Greek word in chapter 6, the feeding of 5,000, is kofinos. And kofinos is a smaller basket that's your daily provision. Personal basket, if you will. This word is a And spuris is a larger basket, which makes sense. If they were going for three days, they would have brought more provision. It's a totally different word, totally different bag. Why would he do that two chapters apart if it's the same? When you look at all, that's an awful lot to get wrong through telephone. So I think it's two separate things, which tells us what? These guys have to, one, he won more times the miracle, which is great, But one more time, he's got to teach them a lesson. Just like us. And what is that lesson? And I think that's our first point this morning. This miracle tells us what? It tells us that Jesus once again demonstrates the abundance of his kingdom. His kingdom's abundant. There's no worries in the kingdom of God. There's no anxiety in the kingdom of God. And when we live in the kingdom... Fear and anxiety are banished. They're exiled out of the kingdom of God. And when you make a decision to trust in Jesus Christ, as your Lord and Savior, you become a citizen of the kingdom. And there's everything we need in the kingdom. In the Sermon on the Mount, and if you need an application in the scripture, when's the last time you spent a lot of time reading through Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount? Because in that sermon, greatest sermon i think ever preached that sermon where jesus describes to us what the kingdom of heaven is like and and how it's been begun it's it's inaugurated with his coming and he's bringing the blessings it's and and it's not that it's here in its fullness it won't be until he returns but something has begun and and he's placed the kingdom within us We're told in Romans 14, 17, where Paul says the kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. There's something real that's among us that we could tap into. And there's no need to worry. And so in that sermon, he says, you can love your enemies. Why? Because the kingdom's here, and the king is here, and he understands that he'll make it just in his time. You can trust the king is here. He's not missing this. Why don't you have to worry about what you eat, drink, or wear, like the pagans who run after those things? Because the kingdom's here. And so he tells us this, and let's say it together. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things we worry about will be given to you as well. If you've never memorized scripture, this is a good verse to start with. So easy to remember. I memorized this as a a young Christian, and and it has been a helpful thing to me because I'm prone to worry and anxiety growing up poor the way I did. I'm prone to it. And I always have to stop myself and say, okay, there's a core part of me that has not still been transformed totally by the Word of God. And when I get in a bad place financially or whatever, I can, that core comes out. And it overrides what's in my head, which is the Word of God. And so we need to go deeply in the Word to let it penetrate and transform that core. So we don't respond in anxiety, but we respond in faith otherwise we live like orphans in the world i'm reminded of a story i read years ago about a little orphan girl and she was adopted by an american family she came from a third world nation where she had i mean we're talking abject poverty days without food just just this is just someone who had nothing and she was still a little girl when she was adopted by her american family the first night that you know they flew her over they drove her home The first meal she sat at was a big meal on their kitchen table. And it was, I mean, it was everything. They laid out everything for her. There was only one problem. She sat there and didn't touch the food. So everyone was like, what's wrong? You would think she would like dive into the food. And all of a sudden, the mother, thank God for moms. In her wisdom, she realized this isn't a rebellion issue or anything like that. I know what's going on. She goes over, gets out of her chair, takes her orphan daughter out of her chair, walks her over and opens up the food pantry and brings her in. And then she gets down on her knees and she looks at her new daughter in the eyes and she says, honey, it's okay to eat that food on the table. There's plenty more where that came from. And I promise as your mother, you will have food to eat. There's abundance in this home. And many of us, we've trusted in Christ. Ephesians 1.3 says that, uh, that the riches of heaven are ours in Christ. But We live like orphans. He's got all of his abundance to pour into us. Peace, joy, provision, daily provision, everything we need for life and godliness through faith. Let's not live like orphans. Let's not live like orphans. All right, so Jesus gets into the boat after feeding all them, and he takes off. He goes across to Dalinutha, which is the other side of the lake, and when he gets there, he gets out of the boat, and another group of people meet him, the Pharisees. And, you know, we've run into them a lot. Religious teachers who, they're the power brokers of the day. They think Jesus is threatening their power structure. And so because of that, they're against him. We saw back in chapter 3, they believe Jesus is motivated by Satan, that he's an agent of Satan, and they're against him. They want to kill him. They're, they're conspiring with Herod, the king. To, to They want to put him to death at some point. So the Pharisees are coming, looking great on the outside. He's religious people, but their hearts are very far from God. And they come, and they begin to question Jesus, to test him. They ask him for a sign from heaven, and he sighed deeply. Actually, the Greek says, sigh deeply in his spirit. Most of your translations have that. I don't know why the NIV chose not to put in his spirit. It means deep emotion here. He sighed deeply in his spirit, and he said, why does this generation ask for a sign? One more time. Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. And then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. Wow, that was a short visit. <laughs> There's a big difference between the unbelief that the disciples are dealing with and the unbelief the Pharisees are dealing with, and that's what I want to bring out. Let's look at these Pharisees a little bit in their unbelief. They come and they begin to question Jesus. Some very important words here. I want to help you understand what they mean. So the, the word behind question is not just a friendly conversation. Suzette L. So is it that? Oh, there you go. It's to discuss, debate, argue. It's to express forceful differences of opinion, okay? Anyone like arguing? I know some people who do. Okay, some people like to argue. Most people hate to argue. These guys are not coming to have a nice little, you know, lakeside lunch with Jesus and talk about life and God. They're here to argue, and, and they're here to get at it with him. What's their aim? Well, it says they came to question him and to test him. The word test is another word that's important here. It's pirazzo, and it's to obtain information to be used against a person by trying to cause someone to make a mistake. In other words, you're testing them to get them to fail. It's not a test, a positive test, like a coach would, an athlete, testing you to to make you the best you can be as an athlete. This is a test to hopefully to get you to, to stumble and fall. See the Pharisees are not interested in finding out truth. They're trying to find failure in Jesus. And all of us need to think about that for a minute. Cuz if we're honest, there are some people we listen to to learn from. There are other people we listen to just to see what can I what do I not agree with in what they're saying right now. What posture do we take? Do we take the posture of a learner or do we take the posture of a critic? I'm not saying don't be, crit- you always be, crit- when you're listening to someone, you know, Scripture says to measure it by the Word of God. Absolutely, that's not my point. But do we even have an open heart? Or do we feel like we already have all the answers? Because that's how the Pharisees are coming. They just want agreement. They're just looking for agreement. They're not looking to be taught. And as people who know the Word well, sometimes I think we come to, to, the, to a service not to be taught, but to look for agreement. And the only time we hear back is when, oh, I didn't agree with that. <laughs> you need to change your thinking. Well, maybe we need to talk about it and be open. Anyways, the Pharisees are testing him to see him fail, and they ask for what? A sign from heaven. Why do they think he's going to fail at that? Because up until now, he's been doing miracles on earth. But a sign from heaven? That's not a miracle on earth. That would be something more than he's done. That would be something that only someone from heaven could do. So, there, And in their minds... They've already decided that Jesus is a false teacher. He's not from heaven. So they're giving him a test that they know he's going to fail. At least they believe. And then if he refuses to do it, they'll say, see, false teacher. So they feel like they've got him in a trap. But Jesus is shrewd and wise, and he ain't going there. So we read, verse 12, he sighed deeply in his spirit. Why does this generation ask for a sign Truly I tell you, and any time you see in the New Testament Jesus saying, truly I tell you, you circle what comes after it and underline why, because that's the New Testament equivalent of thus saith the Lord in the Old Testament. This is revelation from God. I tell you the truth, what? No sign will be given to it. What's the revelation? None. (laughs) Because of the hardness of their heart, because they're not sincere in their seeking at all. And he knows it. He can see through their pretense. He can see through their hypocrisy. Actually, every single commentator remarked on this. The way this sentence is worded, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. The way it's worded is in the form of an ancient uh, curse formula, which would, go to, which would sound something like this. May God curse me and put me to death if I give you what you ask for. That's essentially the wording. In other words, Jesus, this is, you know, that idea of Jesus being the, the nice, you know, warm, cuddly Jesus. And sure, he can be that. But then he can also be the tough Jesus. He's being tough here. And these people deserve it because they have had sign after sign after sign starting from Moses and the prophets. And they've rejected him the whole way. And they're not open at all to teaching. They've elevated themselves over Jesus, over the revelation of God. And when someone's done that, there's nothing you could do for them. And that's our second point. He gets in the boat and leaves. Second point, the Pharisees are unwilling to believe in Jesus or his kingdom. See, there's a difference between, and don't miss this, unwilling to believe and unable to believe. There's a difference between refusing to believe and struggling to believe. We'll talk more about that in a minute. We're talking about refusing to believe, okay? Closed off completely. Well, just give us a sign from heaven and we'll believe. Is that, is that authentic and true? I'm reminded of the story in Luke 16 when Jesus told the story about a rich man and a beggar whose name was Lazarus. Some think it's a parable. Some think it's a true story. Either way, the, the, the main point is true. The rich man and Lazarus. So there's this rich man and he has everything. He has no concern. He is is completely content with his earthly life. He's not looking for anything beyond this world because he's got everything. And at the end of his roadway, you know, his walkway, at the end of his, on the other side of the gate of his mansion is a beggar who God knows by name, Lazarus. And that's important that he doesn't know that we're not given the rich man's name. It's from God's perspective lazarus now we don't know why he's poor it doesn't tell us was it the result of injustice or was it his own poor unwise sinful life we don't know why he's poor it doesn't matter bottom line is he's poor and he's in need and what we see is an utter disregard for this man's state by the rich man because all he's focused on is his own earthly concerns just like the Pharisees are focused on their earthly concerns of keeping power in Israel. And just like the disciples are thinking about bread. Well, the time comes that they die. And then Jesus says when they die, the Lazarus, the beggar, ends up in the arms of Father Abraham in heaven. And then it says that the rich man ends up in hell in torture. And he's, he is now in this eternal place of torment. He cries out, And it says, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to give me relief. He still, even in his being judged, still sees Lazarus as someone to serve him. Talk about pride and self-reliancy. And then we pick up the story. And this is where I want to pick it up. Verse 27. Father Abraham answered, I mean, I'm sorry, the rich man answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers let him, Lazarus, warn them so they won't come to this place of torment. And Abraham replies to the rich man, they have Moses and the prophets, the word of God, all the signs. Let them listen to them. And the rich man says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes to them, well, then they'll repent. Something big. And he said to him, if they do not they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. And, of course, he's alluding to what? His own resurrection that they're going to completely deny. Now it's not about getting a sign. It's not about getting more evidence. It's about humbling ourselves and being willing to surrender our lives to one bigger than us, God himself. Or are we going to continue in our own earthly concerns, focused on ourselves, relying on ourselves, self focused? They are fighting against God. And they're not going to get anywhere because of it. And we need to all remember to stay humble before the Lord. Read it again Matthew 6 33, all together. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Don't get caught up in this stuff. There's a bigger kingdom, better. Pursue that. Well, it's one thing if someone dead set against you like the Pharisees doesn't believe and and, and don't come along. But when it's those closest to you, that's harder, isn't it? So on their boat trip, Let's see what's going on with the disciples. Verse 14. So the disciples, as they're going along on the boat, all of a sudden they realize what? We forgot to bring bread. <laughs> Except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Disciples were supposed to bring provisions for the, for the rabbi. So this is they're, they're, they didn't do their job. Okay? And as they realized they messed up, Jesus all of a sudden chooses that moment to do a teaching. And he says, be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast bread of the Pharisees and that of Herod. And they discussed it with one another. And they said, it's because we have no bread. <laughs> okay, now wait a minute. What did, we just, what did they just see for a second time? Is bread an issue for Jesus? No. And if it was, would he be passive aggressive and say, be careful of the use of the bread? And if he was upset about the bread, he would just tell them, why didn't you bring bread? What is going on with these guys? He says, be careful. So what is Jesus trying to say, first of all? He's a be careful. He warned them. And the word there for warned is really strong. It's a very strong word. It's something you say when someone is right on the brink of making a really bad decision. It's not a teaching. It's a warning when someone's right on the brink of going over the edge. In other words, the disciples are awfully close to stepping into Pharisaic unbelief. See, I think we don't see that necessarily. He warned them strongly. Watch out, another very strong word, for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. The Pharisees are the religious leaders. Herod is the political leader. Watch out for them. What do they have in common? The Pharisees and Herod, what they have in common is earthly concern. They're all about this world. They're all about the things of the earth. That's where their focus is they're about aggrandizing themselves on the backs of injustice and hypocrisy. Watch out for their yeast. Yeast. Why did he use yeast? Well, of course, he just did a bread miracle, so in his mind. Actually, the word there is leaven. And we think of yeast, we think of a good thing, right? It causes bread to rise, it gets nice and golden brown, you know, it's 1215, that's making me a little hungry. I'm, I'll try not to go so long here, okay? But still, yeast, we think of a positive connotation, but not in the ancient world. Yeast in the ancient world, it could be used positively, but by and large, it was used in a negative way. Remember, he's in the Decapolis too, which is more of a Greek-dominated area. In the first century, Plutarch was a great uh, a Greek poet and philosopher in the time of Jesus, well, a little after the time of Jesus, the time of Paul. And he wrote this about leaven. Leaven is itself the product of corruption. It produces corruption in the dough with which it is mixed. And altogether, the process of leavening seems to be one of putrefaction. At any rate, if it goes too far, it completely sours and spoils the dough. In other words... In the ancient world, in in the Greek world, when you talk about leaven or yeast, it immediately had images of corruption. It corrupts everything that it spreads to. Jesus is saying, be careful, you guys. Watch out, because it's coming for you. The yeast of unbelief of the Pharisees and getting caught up in earthly concerns, it's right on your doorstep. Watch for it. And don't think you're above it. Now I believe, and we teach in this church the assurance of salvation. We believe, John 10, many other scriptures, that when Christ saves you, he saves you and he holds you. And you don't, He doesn't save you and then you preserve yourself. He holds you and preserves you. It's all of God, salvation, beginning to end. With that said, that doesn't mean we just go on vacation the rest of our lives. And we're gonna talk about that next week when Jesus is gonna lay down the requirements of following him. And it's steep. And we all have to be thinking about, am I on the precipice without even realizing it of falling into unbelief like the Pharisees? And it's much easier to fall there than we think. I'm not talking about losing salvation. I'm talking about losing connection with the kingdom and its abundance and all of its power and instead living a life as if you never met Jesus and, I've met, and I, even as a believer in Jesus Christ, over 37 years, I've had times in my experience where I've been like totally disconnected from God out of unbelief and living like a Pharisee. Coming to church, looking good, but very far from God. And that's a bad place to be. I love Kent Hughes. Uh, Rich and I both always enjoyed his commentaries. He's a pastor, was a pastor. Here's what he said, and I, I connected with this. He said, the disciples' problem here came from familiarity. The repeated exposure to his teaching, when not reflected upon and acted upon, worked a progressive insensitivity and dullness in their lives. You ever experienced dullness in your life spiritually? We experience this as well when we, uh, we fail to think and act upon what God has revealed to us. It's a case of use it or lose it. A principle I was taught as a young Christian, I found this to be true, and i encourage you to think about this, is just like a teacher will never teach algebra to a student who hasn't done basic math yet. God's not going to give you more and deeper revelation of the spiritual life until we've learned to apply the things he's already taught us. And some of us, the reason we're stuck and we're not moving anywhere is because we haven't applied and we're not living out what we've already been taught. And we got to ask ourselves, what am I not believing in the elementary things? Why am I upset that God's not showing me deeper things spiritually? Maybe it's because I haven't obeyed right here. And so, Father, I just pray for everyone in this room because for the most part, I look around the room, most of these people have known you for a long time, and I just pray, Father, where there's dullness, would you show us where maybe areas that we have let go or that we are not walking in so that we can go on to the greater things, the deeper revelations. I pray for this. I just sense that there's there's. This is in this room. So, Father, I pray you would speak to each heart here. Forgive us where we've failed, where we know better, but we've just ignored your truth. Help us to walk in the truth and all the freedom that it gives us. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. I'll be honest with you guys. I'm I'm in the middle of reading. I'm doing a reading through the Bible in a year and um, I hadn't done it in a couple years. I I used to do it every year, and then it got to be a little too rote, So, and I did different things the last couple years, but this year I thought I should get back into it. So right now where I am in my reading is Jeremiah. And if you're familiar with the book of Jeremiah, it's 50-some-odd chapters of the same thing. Every chapter is the same exact message. Now, why? Because Israel never gets it. It makes my point. So God keeps saying the same lesson until they get it, and they never get it. And I was wondering, how in the world do people preach through the Book of Jeremiah? I, I, how would you go word verse by verse through Jeremiah? Like I don't even know if that's possible. It would be excruciating to be the same sermon for two years every single Sunday. Now, why am I saying that? Because as I'm reading through Jeremiah, I'm going to be honest with all of you because God knows it anyway, so why can't I share? I have been tuning out, glazed over eyes, reading through, oh, I got to read three chapters. Okay. <laughs> destroy you, destroy you, destroy you, destroy you. Okay. Honestly. And I'm the only one in this room that's ever read the word like that, right? Uh, Let's be honest. See, I got to stop that and say, Lord, you have something to say to me through this word today. This is what you've provided for me. It may not be my favorite meal, (laughs) but it's a meal. And if I open up my heart and mind, you got something to tell me. But See, instead, I got my task-oriented, get my Bible reading done, check it off. And then I expect God to give me a great revelation. Don't forget, he's not going to teach you anything new until you've learned what he's already taught you. And so that's what he basically says next. So they say, oh, Jesus is upset because we didn't bring bread. All right, aware of their discussion, (laughs) after he just did a second miraculous provision of bread on an immense level, right, he asks them, why? Are you talking about having no bread? Right, this is where I started today, one more time. Okay, really? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketful full of pieces did you pick up? Now, they're not going to say a whole lot at this point, right? Twelve. Good for you, disciples. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketful of pieces did you pick up? And they answered, seven. And he said to them, Do you still not understand? Even those closest to him don't get it. They don't get it. And I, I marvel at sometimes... At the patience of God. Because I told you earlier, both the Pharisees and the disciples are struggling with unbelief, right? We're seeing, well, that's the thing. That's no, that's not right. They're both not believing. But it's a different kind of unbelief. See, if we go back to the to the the people in the field, three days they're there learning from Jesus. They're hungry. And they don't even care about food. They don't care about anything on the earth because they got something better right here. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And they are satisfied when they leave. Then you got the Pharisees who refuse to believe. They get nothing. Then you get the disciples who are struggling to believe. And Jesus gives them questions. Nine questions. It took me 18 seconds to read it when I practiced it. Nine. It's meant to be taken as a whole. Nine questions. Bing, 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 bing. Don't you get it? He's treating each one differently based on where they're at. He gives nothing to the Pharisees. He gives everything to these ones who pursue him and his kingdom message with no regard for anything. But the ones who are worried about bread and position... Got to deal with them a little differently. These guys, nothing. These guys, he gives them questions. He's not giving up on the disciples. He keeps asking them questions. He doesn't just say, like he does with the Pharisees, you guys still don't get it? I'm out of here. And then walks on the water over to the shore. (laughs) He doesn't do that. He's still staying with them, even as they're struggling. And I find that encouraging because I don't have it together, you guys, if you haven't figured this out yet. And you don't either. And I'm so glad we have a patient God who'll stay with us as we stay with him. So third and final point. The disciples are slow to believe and unable to see the reality of the kingdom. See, that's the thing. The only ones who taste of the kingdom are these Jews and Gentiles over in the Decapolis who give up everything to seek the kingdom. They taste the kingdom in its abundance. Neither one of these do for different reasons. So where are Where are we this morning? I want to close with just two applications. The first one is something I've given out in the past. It's been a little while, maybe a year. It's called Your Spiritual Journey. It's a little, really helpful little pamphlet. And inside it gives you the continuum of faith. Searching to following. First of all, you've got not interested. Someone who says, I want nothing to do. I hate religion. I'm an atheist. I want nothing to do with it. Don't even talk to me. Not much you can do there, but pray. But if you take a step, the next step towards Christ is curiously searching. This is someone who realizes, you know what? There's got to be more to life than just what I see. Ooh, that's a really significant step towards Christ. Encourage that when you see that in someone. And then eventually they take another step, searching assertively. This is someone willing to open up the Bible and see what Jesus has to say. And then if they get to the place of believing it, that's a faith commitment where you say yes to Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You let him lead you through the Holy Spirit and the word of God. And if you haven't done that, I urge you to do that. It's, there's no big form magic formula. In your heart, you surrender and say, Lord, you died on the cross for my sins. And because of that, I, I can be accepted. My sins can be forgiven. And when our sins are forgiven, we can be accepted by God. And you accept that glorious gospel message and he, he brings you into heaven. The back of this explains that whole process for you You can read it on your own but it doesn't end there once you say yes to jesus there's more steps in order to grow into the fullness of the kingdom of all god wants for you there's experiencing new life growing in community and then helping others know christ and multiplying your life this is called discipleship or following jesus and it's what our church is about and what we invite you into so maybe you want to come up here i got tons of copies up here and grab one of these. And then again, on the back, there's questions that'll help you figure out where am I in the spectrum and what would be my next step? And then how do I accept Christ? If I want to make a faith commitment, how do I do that? encourage you to do that and then come talk to any of us on staff or elders, deacons, and we'd love to talk to you about that. Let me close with an illustration of what it looks like when someone believes what they don't see, when they understand the kingdom's real and the king is really here. I've shared this many times, but it's the best example I've ever seen. Corey Ten Boom, The Hiding Place. How many of you read that book? Okay, quite a few of you, but not enough. Every person in this room should read this book. I think it's an absolute must-read after the Bible. I can't endorse a book enough. This wonderful old lady, Dutch woman, and she wrote her story about her and her family took in Jews during World War II when the Nazis overran Holland. And they hid them from the Nazis knowing that they were going to take them away and kill them. So they hid them in their home, but they were discovered. And Corey and her sister Betsy and her father and the whole family was taken away and split up into prison camps. By God's grace, Corey and her sister Betsy ended up staying together, which is unusual. God kept them together, which is good because Corey was cracking under the pressure of all the suffering, but Betsy wasn't, because Betsy saw something more than all of the death around her. She saw the kingdom of God. She had eyes that saw the King is right here, even in the worst circumstance you can imagine. And at one point, she they end up in a bunker with hundreds of other, or a bunker. I'm sorry, a dormitory, if you will, with hundreds of other women all emaciated, all suffering. And and you can go ahead to the next picture here. And and they would be put three women to a bunk. It was just, it's just horrible. I mean, I could go on and on about how disgusting it is, and I won't. And they lost all hope in this place. But somehow, by a miracle of God, Betsy decided, risking her life, when she was brought into the camp, they made them stripped down naked so they could bring nothing in. And they made sure that it didn't bring anything in in any other way. And I'll just put it that way. Well, she just went ahead and said, I'm bringing my Bible. And she walked through and naked with her Bible and the guards literally just let her go right through with the Bible in hand. Uh, inexplicable. Happened. Hundreds of witnesses to it. So she had a Bible. And at night, after they were all hunkered down in a quiet voice, she would read the words of Jesus. Many of these women didn't even know Jesus. And she'd read the words of Jesus and all of a sudden despair gave way to hope. And the reality of Jesus and his kingdom was more real than all the suffering and the sores and the difficulty and the dying. The best quote in the book, I think, is a summary of their experience. And here it is. And I'll end with this. Corey said, Life in Ravensbrook took place on two separate levels, mutually impossible. One was the observable external life, which grew ever more horrible. The other, the life we lived with God, grew daily better, truth upon truth, glory upon glory. Wow. That's what we're called to live in through faith, believing God at his word, walking with him. Father, I pray for every person in this room. I pray that one more time you would visit them in all of your power and glory and that they would surrender themselves to you to an extent where your kingdom becomes so real to them. And for those of us who become dull, I pray that one more time you would warn us and keep us from poor decisions. Help us, Lord, to surrender to you. Help us to believe you And help us to experience the glory and the power and the presence of Jesus the King. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you need prayer, there'll be someone up here to pray with you. Please come and take one of these spiritual journey pamphlets if you'd like. And please talk to us about walking in the fullness of all Christ has for you.